Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. Oh. It's Monday, and we're going to talk about Game of Thrones a lot, and you're watching AM to DM. <laughs> All right, let's get into the tea. Let's talk about Game of Thrones. There you go. Just real quick. That sound, that <laughs> sound was the sound of, oh, you didn't watch it? Oh, you scared of spoilers? <laughs> you should have cared more last night, darling. It's like a live TV event. You kind of got to watch it, I think, at this point. We've talked about it on the show before. You got to watch it when it's happening. There were 7.8 million tweets about Game yeah. of Thrones last night. If you're on the timeline, and you don't want spoilers, I don't know what to tell You're you. You're just Cersei down there eating your TV dinners, being like, oh, what happened up north? What, what's, what's going on? I, I'm confused. That's, that's your problem. It's a new problem. It's your problem when you got green eyes. Good luck. All right, here's a tweet from Naima. Uh, I'm just going to randomly be saying Ira motherfucking Stark for the rest of my life. Arya motherfucking Arya. Stark, my friend. At she any moment. did that. What did she do? That. She, she did, did that. I just, that just, knife drop. She just knife, killed that. Like, oh, mm. He got her. And then, oh. Oh, knife drop. Yeah. It was so beautiful. Listen, it added so much. People are still going over all the things we really learned, right? right. We are talking about that. Still processing. There wasn't a lot of dialogue in yesterday's Which I episode. liked. Yeah, yeah exactly. When you battle, war, and everything, you don't have time for long monologue. You don't, if you wanted all that, that was the last episode. You don't have time to talk. Yeah. The hound was freaking out, but we didn't have a line that like reminded you, right. oh, he's really scared of fire. Right. So maybe being involved in a giant fight where the only defense you really have against these things is fire was a little yeah. troubling for him. Ned Stark dying in season one. Mm. All of a sudden, that move has even more weight because right. he was saving the life of Sansa and Arya, which is incredible because at the time, I remember being like, I didn't like Sansa that much. <laughs> that and now called, look at her. That was called an investment death, darling. That's smart. <laughs> and it's incredible because obviously Sansa and, and, and Arya have become two of the most formidable characters, period, on the show in stark mm. contrast to Danny and Jon's performance last night. Mm. Um, and Arya in particular, I just found, obviously, you know, Killing the Night King's pretty great. But her scenes inside uh, Winterfell, making her way through the library, climbing over, you're jumping over the zombies, seeing the fruition of all of her training and experiences on the same night she lost her virginity, by the way, uh, come out like so beautifully. And also seeing like she gets hit in the head. She's yeah. We saw such a range. And then the show masterfully, I thought, made us forget about her for a moment. And then when she pops up jumping behind the Night King, I was I was truly surprised. Yeah, it's, oh, how did you sneak up on me? That's something Jon Snow had said to her earlier there. Also, I I hadn't thought of this, but you just brought that up. The, it's like a flip of a horror film uh, trope. Listen. There's like a zombie thing. It's like, oh, you have sex, and then you get got. Mm -hmm. It's like, she had sex. Now she does the get it. Yeah, high school coaches will never be able to tell their athletes <laughs> not to have sex the night before the okay, game. Okay, Ben Newkirk tweeted, John is still an idiot. My man was going to square up with a <sighs> whole dragon. Now here's Starks are going to Stark, though. Not all of them. Sansa oh. and, and Arya did just fine. May I, just may I edit? Go may on. Edit. Uh -huh. Male Starks are going to Stark, though. Yes. Male Starks are going to Stark. All mediocre men must die. <laughs> I just... He, he just wanted to help. <laughs> Narratively, I appreciate it because it was kind of like Danny and the dragons. Like, if they've just been so easily to just burn everything, like, it takes away suspense. And Jon Stark has had so many moments of getting to be the hero at the last moment. So that's part of the thrill. But, you know, setting aside narrative concerns. like That dragon did look cool, though. Fucking idiot. When Jon Stark that was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run alone mm. across the field of dead people mm. and directly try to take on the Night King. And the Night King mm. was like, bitch, really? <laughs> like, what are 
you. <laughs> anyway, Rodimus Prime and I had the same reaction to the end of a very intense, very dark episode. Um, why am I still watching HBO like the 11 o'clock news is going to cover <laughs> what happened at the Battle of Winterfell? Yeah, same. I, I like the idea that it's just like a bunch of guys from the wall all in black. They're just like stacking papers. <laughs> they're like, in today's death. Now we go to. Here's what's going on. Right. I, I will shout out to the Dothraki. It was very sad to oh, watch just and, like. And terrifying. Those lights be extinguished. Mm-hmm. Also the Unsullied. Uh, you know, POC characters fighting in a foreign land. Let's. Mm, there's a lot to get into there. But do we know who else died? Okay, so I you have, could actually I have, be an anchor. I have read right now. eight different vulture articles this morning <laughs> to catch up. Okay, so the Dothraki and Unsullied, and I'm gonna, not going to let them go without significance, as you said. The show might, but we won't. Uh, uh, Ed Tollett, he saved Samwell, which we all know is a death sentence in battle. Like, <laughs> save him, you're going to get killed in exchange for his life. Uh, Beric Dondarrion, um, you know, beautiful. I mean, I thought that was a beautiful moment of him fulfilling his purpose. Why was he brought back from the dead? So many times so that Ara could do that. Mm. Um, and I can continue to mispronounce her name. Uh, Theon Greyjoy. Oh, I just felt, Theon, like, listen, if I die protecting you, <laughs> you better give me a smile along with your good man. Like, bro, Bran gave him no, he was just like, you're a good man. Like, it's like, that's, he this was man like, is about to lay nigga. down. Like, yeah, but he didn't even give him, he's not even I, To be fair, that's the most Bran has emoted the entire season. <laughs> Fair. That Fair. was the equivalent yeah. of a hug for Fair. Um, <laughs> uh, Liana Mormont. Now, I told you, everyone mm. got so mad mm. when I was like, obviously, Liana's going to be one of the first people to die because she's going to go in there guns blazing. Mm-hmm. And the reality of her being a tiny person was just highlighted by, like, yeah, take down a giant. But she did. She did. She did. If she, if you're going to go, it was a hell of a way to go. I, we stand. Mm-hmm. We stand her. Uh, Sir Jorah. Living as he died in the friend zone. But you know what he did? He did it was beautiful. He was like not even a kid. <laughs> and my unexpected new BFF, the Red Witch. I just love it. So relatable. First of all, unlike Jon Snow, she did the damn thing. She was like, oh, you need some fire? Here we go. Duolingo. Let's do this. She served, you know, she lit the swords. That she did beautiful. kill a child, though. Let well, us not forget. An investment death. Okay, she paid it forward. And then I love that she was like, okay, and now I'm going to walk out into the snow because I've had it with these white people. I've done what I had to do. She's Take like, that I'm out. Off. And I'm gone. And I'm gone. Disappear. I love it. Which I like the idea of Sir Davos running out after her, picking that necklace up, putting it on. And now for the last three episodes, we get young, hot Sir Davos. That's going to be the rest of the series. Which is trash because Sir Davos, Leon Cunningham, the actor who played him, I got to interview him That's at right. our first season on the show, and he is fine. That's, you don't okay. need no redneck. I'll take it back. I take All it right. back. You're, You're right. You're right. Liam Cunningham, I apologize. Make me cry. All right. Let's take it to the timeline. Now that the long night is over... <laughs> I guess, uh, where does Game of Thrones go for the last three episodes? This is it. Only three episodes. Let us know using the hashtag, not today, bitch. I'm just telling you, it's going to be Sir Davos on spring break. Last three episodes, <laughs> just out there rocking a 20-year-old bod. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, obviously, though, Game of Thrones was not the only big thing that happened. This It was a crazy weekend. A, a delightfully exhausting weekend. A delightfully so exhausting weekend <laughs> for pop culture. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News senior film reporter Adam Bivari. Avengers Endgame box office debut, $350 million domestic, $1.2 billion worldwide. It has fundamentally altered what's even possible for a film's success. It's as if, after years of trying to land on the moon, humanity suddenly reached Mars. Okay. Which, here's the thing. Just talking the money, that is like, that's not hyperbolic. Like, you see these graphs and they're usually like this. Mm -hmm. Like, it has jumped. It's It's incredible. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about that. Want to be very clear here, though. 
No spoilers here, Not all right? Because game. yeah, Game of Thrones was a little bit different. That's a live event you kind of got to watch in this yep. final season. I watched Endgame this weekend. If somebody had spoiled the pure enjoyment that I got out of it, I would be very upset. I like I don't even want to raise people's bars. Like going into it with a low bar. Oh, but I, what a I'm movie! See it this afternoon. Okay. All right. Well, Buzzfeed critic and culture writer Allison Wilmore joins us now to discuss the phenomenon that is in game. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. All right. So that is a billion with a B. It is still not nearly as much money as Lori Loughlin paid to get her daughter into college. Uh, how does this change the way we think about movies? Thank you. Uh, and obviously Marvel as well. Well, you know, it's it's beyond anything that uh, another movie has done in terms of just an opening. I mean, 1.2 billion, that's the kind of total that a lot of other movies hope for. So, you know, you've really, you're setting like, you're breaking new ground in terms of just how many people in a few days will come out and see a single movie. Mm. And obviously this has been what, like, years in the making, so it's a kind of unique uh, situation. Marvel's really pioneered this. Hmm. It is a unique situation, but let's really, like, I want to get down into kind of brass tacks. How did they make this much? Like, I went to a theater this weekend, and it was like, it was showing in every single theater. Like, right. how did they actually make room to make this much money? Yeah, you know, a three-hour movie, like, it poses a unique challenge, right? You can only show it so many times during the day. Your movie's 80 minutes, you can show it twice as often. So they're really dealing with a, a kind of unique situation here. But it opened in like 4,600 theaters. That was a record in itself, like the widest opening. You see a lot of theaters that were like entirely, most of the screens were dedicated to it. Also a lot of theaters, not a lot, but some theaters went all night. So you could go see that, you know, 3 a.m. screening if everything else was sold out. I was kind of curious. I did not actually try that. But it, it definitely was in more theaters and for longer than you'd ever expect. Yeah, there was a, I tweeted about this, but there's a movie theater in my neighborhood that had screening times from, you know, throughout the morning, normal hours into the afternoon, up until a 1 a.m. showing and a 4 a.m. showing. And, and I tweeted about, like, who would do this? And many people were like, bitch, I would. I <laughs> would do this. Um, well, this is my question. I think there, part of it is the phenomenon, right? This is unique, 10 years in the making. But also, the fear of spoilers doesn't seem inconsequential. So do we have a sense of how the numbers might change going into next weekend at all? Yeah, I, I'm very curious to see how it's going to change. You know, uh, there's certainly more pressure on this in particular to go see it uh, before you figure out, like, who of your faves might be gone, you know, and, like, uh, who who is going on. And I, I think that uh, we were in, like, new ground, so I'm not really sure. I assume it's going to go on to make still a lot of money for weekends after this. But I think also there was, like, more impetus to see this that first weekend that there maybe ever has mm. in one of these movies. Yeah. So a lot of people came out to see it this past I week. I mean, I'm going to, again, I'm trying to keep expectations low, but they're going to get my money again. Oh, they're going to get my money. I always say that, and I never go back. Oh, they're going to get my money once or twice. Um, I will. I wanted to ask, listen, you're such an incredible film critic. You're, you're such a great culture writer. You have the knowledge. What other moments in cinematic history were like this? Like like, like Adam B. Berry saying we overshot the moon right. and landed on Mars. What other moments are, are this dramatic? Well, you know, it's still not the number one of all time. It's still, you know, got some time to go go ahead and build up. But you've got, like, Avatar up there. You've got Titanic, which is still, you know, was this enormous phenomenon. It was also a super long movie. I think that you, we're, we're, we're looking at this kind of... Uh, this type of event movie, but also, I, I, you know, this is different in that it's part of this universe, so you've had all of this build in a way that uh, a lot of other big hits didn't have yet. 
It is, it is a unique unto itself movie. Well, Allison, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Always a pleasure. All right, of course. Unfortunately, the weekend was not just about movies and great TV shows. We also have to talk about the reality of politics in our country. There was a tragic and horrific shooting at a synagogue right outside of San Diego, California, on the last day of Passover. Here's a tweet about that from BuzzFeed News. One woman was killed. Three other people were injured. A 19-year-old man is in custody. Authorities say the suspect was armed with an AR-type assault weapon. BuzzFeed News director Tom Namako joins us now. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Okay, so let's talk about this. What exactly happened on Saturday? So a 19-year-old posted a rambling, crazy, anti-Semitic rant online. Moments later, walks into a synagogue and opens fire. He hits four people. He kills one person, Lori Kay, and hits three other people. Uh, people have dropped to the ground. They are crawling to safety. They are hiding um, for their lives. And then the rabbi, at one point, uh, comes face to face with the gunman. He gets hit in the fingers, has his fingers blown off, some of his fingers blown off. Um, and at one point, as the rabbi says miraculously, the gunman's uh, weapon, which is an assault style rifle, jams. At that point, uh, he begins to flee. Another member of the synagogue chases after him. An off duty uh, border patrol agent who is in the room um, and had a weapon with him also gave chase. Uh, the gunman got into a car, drove away, and eventually was arrested by police. Okay. And I, as I understand, the rabbi also issued a statement. Uh, can you tell us more about what he said? So yesterday, he, um, he held a news conference, uh, which was extremely powerful and very, very dramatic, where he's, his hands are very obviously wrapped up. You can see a hand where he is just missing a finger. Um, he had just come out of, the, uh, out of the hospital. And he gave his recounting of what had happened inside, coming face to face with the gunman saying that he was wearing sunglasses, and therefore the rabbi could not see his soul. Mm. Um, he described the moment where he was shot. Um, and then after, when it was all over, in the aftermath, when the gunman had driven away, the rabbi said, you know, I'm bleeding from my hands. My, my grandchild has seen me run into a room with children and scream, get out to them. He said, what am I supposed to do? He said, I got up on a chair. He's like, and I delivered a sermon. And he talked about how, you know, they won't be cowed by terrorism how, uh, you know, the Jewish people are not going to be, you know, are not going to, you know, change because of this and how, you know, how they're all together. It was a very, very powerful moment. Very powerful moment. I wanted to ask, I mean, it's six months to the day, if I'm not mistaken, after the shooting in Pittsburgh. Right. Do we know anything about how this shooter was radicalized? We don't know much about how this specific person was radicalized. What had happened before um, is that he posted a message on 8chan, which, as we know, is just the, the cesspool of of hatred and bigotry and just all kinds of terrible things, um, and told people that he was going to go do this. He also posted a manifesto um, that included, again, just rambling, rambling things that also, at some point in the manifesto, appeared to, uh, he appeared to confess that he had set fire to a mosque last month, actually, and that's what police are investigating right now. Um, but overall, it is not sure what led him down this path. Uh, Tom, you run Breaking News, basically, the entire, you know, the concept of Breaking News here at BuzzFeed. And uh, you've covered, unfortunately, a lot of these kinds of tragic events. And so I wanted to ask you from your perspective at, at the, your job here, um, what have you noticed has changed about these terrible, horrific shootings, often, you know, targeting places of religious, religious worship, uh, and, and then how the internet responds in kind? It, it is 
it's, it's, it's changing dramatically, I think, and what you have, what you're seeing a lot in New Zealand and what you are seeing uh, in this, uh, in the Poway shooting, is there's almost a kind of uh, pre-celebration um, from the shooters online about what they're about to do. They're egged on by people who are on forums like, like 8chan. It is a very, very extremely open environment um, of, of hatred that is, being, that is being pushed around out there. And, um, and it's, you know, frankly, it's terrifying. It is terrifying, and it's not just the internet. Well, uh, Tom, as always, thank you for joining us thank this morning. You. All right, friends, we've got another great show for you today. Comedian Lyric Lewis is here, but up next, we've got a special fire tweet with Daniel Francesi from Mean Girls and Looking. I'm excited to laugh with him. Stay tuned. Hello, my queens. This is a special edition of Fire Tweets. I'm joined by actor and comedian Daniel Francesi, who, of course, played Damien in Mean Girls. He was also on Looking. I loved you on Looking. You were the best part of that season. Thank you. You're going to help me go through these Fire Tweets? Let's do this. All right. Uh, are you ready to go? I am ready. Okay. I'll do the first one to show you how it goes. This tweet okay. comes from Emma Bolden. Emma, you tweeted, I had no idea adulthood would involve so much Advil. Oh, is that all you're worried about, Emma? You're doing pretty good, girl. <laughs> I feel it. I get headaches, too. It's, you know, it's hard adulting. Fair, fair. What has surprised you the most about adulthood? About it, paying bills. I just thought lights went on. <laughs> I had no idea that we had to pay for that. What? That was a surprise. I was a little shocked. Okay. That and cable. I thought TV, the people were in the box, but like, oh, you know, it just doesn't work like that. I also had that moment as a child. Yeah. Fair, fair. It's a little okay. problem. Want to do your first tweet? Yes. <laughs> okay. Kim Chi. I wish every single fortune cookie in the world contained the message, hating popular things does not make you an interesting person. Ooh. Why? You know, this is a RuPaul's Drag about? Race yes. issue. Yeah. Why are the fan base so hateful? I do not understand. They are really... You guys, uh, you got to lighten up on these queens. They were really hard and you have to love your local queens not everybody has like full crews of HD makeup people yeah I just it's it's definitely been a part of what's been hard about loving and interacting with RuPaul's Drag Race in particular is the meanness that you see I know it's just like, although that Reddit gossip is pretty good <laughs> just saying <laughs> what do you I don't want to partake but <laughs> what do you think of this season I love this season. Okay. Nina West is definitely a front runner for me. Obviously, Nina. Brooklyn Heights. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. I just live for RuPaul's Drag Race. I mean, it's like really? my absolute guilty pleasure. I am not embarrassed to like it. Okay, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't no. be. All right, this next tweet comes from Jalen. You tweeted, I just want to know why my clothes only get caught on the door handle when I'm in a bad mood. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. That's the universe looking to give you that last straw, honey. Yeah. That's right. The universe could be shady. <laughs> The universe is a shady lady. <laughs> a shady lady. All right, are you ready to do Tweet of the yeah, Day? Yeah, you ready? All right, let's go. Okay, Tweet of the Day comes from me. Why do screaming kids always sit behind me on a plane? Like, what is Mickey Mouse in retrograde? Mm. What is this? Can we have, like, this is the thing that I really want. Okay. Can we just have, like, a family-only flight? I've wondered about this. As or what about a silent flight? I would, I won't, you know, they're like silent cars on trains. Right. I wouldn't mind like a silent section if that And I heard possible. that Lyft no was going to No one talking do, on their phones. Right. I heard Lyft was going to do Lyft Zen, where you could just oh. like chill out and like your driver won't talk to you. I'm like living for that option. Okay. But I want like a midnight silent, like silent flight. Like I just want to go to bed. <laughs> do not put your light on. Yeah. You don't need to do your Sudoku. I need to sleep. Oh, that's fair. The lights are at an inappropriate time. People weirdly opening their windows when everyone Why? has windows. I always go for like the, you know, there's always that one that doesn't have a window on mm -hmm. the plane. Oh, that's like, what that's you try the to one say. I want. I try to sit, or one behind it, 
so I could like make sure the person adjacent from me can't open it. I have strategies on how to get some sleep and then catch up. You Fair know? enough. Fair enough. Well, yeah. um, okay. So you host the monthly West Hollywood brunch. That is right. And the LGBTQ showcase at the Comedy Store. Yes, the Comedy Store, the one LGBTQ show that they have. Um, is my show. It's called West Hollywood okay. Brunch, and it starts at 8 p.m., but that's when we wake up. Um, it is at the world-famous <laughs> comedy store. And then I also do Danny Franzese and his amazing friends, where we do LGBTQ people and also icons and allies at uh, Flappers Comedy in Burbank. Okay. Yeah, so just trying to, like, showcase different LGBTQ <laughs> artists. You know, you know, we have, like, the Corny Collins, like, gay day. <laughs> gotta do what we gotta do. <laughs> and, of course, like, the comedy store is an iconic space. Iconic, yes. Has, has, do you think, as an industry, uh, comedy has gotten better about accommodating queer people, like, making us We're feel We're getting there. Lesbians have full run. I mean, we have, like, you know, we've had, like, tons of lesbian okay. uh, huge <laughs> headliners. Even, like, Eddie Izzard now came out as trans, right? So it's like... Oh, I did not know that. Uh, Or okay. non-binary or something, but we have, like, you know... Well, Welcome, Eddie. Welcome, Eddie. Welcome to the Fram. So it's like the thing. The thing is that we've never had a gay male headliner that sold out Madison Square Garden yet. Really? So I'm like, look, if it ain't gonna be me, I'm at least gonna showcase to other people that it might be, mm. and just like really, you know, um, shine a light on all of our beautiful brothers and sisters. I and love that you're doing this. You also um, have been traveling on your comedy tour, so you are on the plane a lot. Right. I'm on my Yes, You're Amazing tour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what inspired the name, but yeah. I want to hear it from you. <laughs> well, it's just that everyone always is like, "That's amazing. Mm. Your hair's like amazing." Did you see it? It was amazing. Like, not everything's amazing. Like, you know, but I, but I think making people laugh is an amazing thing. And yeah. so that's what I try to do. And I'm going to be doing that um, here in New York City okay. uh, tomorrow night at the Comic Strip Live. Okay. Um, I'm doing because it's the 15th anniversary of Mean Girls. Yes. So we're doing like a big special show. Like, okay. it's going to be really fun. Do you, like, is the, the Mean Girls anniversary like something you have on your calendar mark? Like, is it your Christmas? Yes. It's, okay. It just says charge more. No. <laughs> <laughs> As a should. Just a note. Just a little note. <laughs> um, Rate no. double. No, I mean, I celebrate it. I think yeah. it's fun. It's definitely, like, obviously a pillar of my career mm-hmm. and always will be. I mean, I'm, like, low-key the cowardly lion or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it's hard being an icon. Oh, my God. It's so hard. Are you in touch with anyone with the cast? Are you? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all, we all try to keep in touch whenever we can. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Jonathan Bennett and Rajiv Sarenja are both going to be at the show tomorrow. Oh, okay. A part of it in some way. I like it. Um, so, you know, we all try to, like, help each other out, and it's really fun. But we're all busy. You know, I'm here at BuzzFeed. You know, Lindsay's kidnapping kids in Syria. We're all really busy. No, I'm just kidding. I love Lindsay. I love Lindsay. I just make jokes. He said no. He said <laughs> No, I just make jokes. <laughs> we're real busy. We got stuff to do. Um, but, you know, come see the show. You'll, maybe you'll run into somebody. Who knows? I love it. I love it. Well, I do want to ask you one more question about yeah. Impulse Records. We have a recap. Every week here. Oh, hook library. it up. Let's yeah, go. You're what do you welcome mean? back anytime. Yes. I know you want to judge. I will be judging. But so let's, let's have you judge. Uh, who's going to win this season? Who's going to win this season? I'm going to go. There's the obvious choice. Like Brooklyn mm-hmm. Heights is like in the in the run. I think Nina West has a shot to come yep. scoop it up in the end. That. But right now, for me, like all odds are pointing to Evie Oddly. My queen. I like how weird she is. I like it. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Mm. You know, it's anybody's game still. That's true. Um, who knows? But, but those um, three, I feel like. But I live for it. It's my sports. Like I always say, <laughs> I always ask my audience, I'm like, who here uh, doesn't watch RuPaul's Drag Race? Mm. And when they clap, I'm like, well, you're going to feel for three minutes how I feel about sports like yeah. every day of my freaking Flip life. The table. Like, sorry, this is my thing. I love it. I love it. Well, Daniel, thanks for hanging thanks out. Thanks for having me. This was really awesome. fun. Yes. This is a delight. And please, everybody, follow me at What's Up Danny yes. on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, blackpeoplemeet.com, JDate, Farmers Only, Christian Mingle, and Venmo. See you soon.
<laughs> Listen, the Venmo is where it's really at. <laughs> That's where all it's right? at. Listen, right? All right. I, don't, I don't need Miko's anniversary if you Venmo me. <laughs> you can get tickets to Daniel's comedy tour. Yes, you're amazing. On whatsupdanny.com. Up next, we're talking about the 2020 election. You said Lindsay's out here kidnapping children. I'm just kidding. I mean, Welcome back. Let's talk 2020. We're joined now by BuzzFeed News Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith. Good morning, Ben. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) All right, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. New political movements look less like old presidential campaigns and more like fandoms, writes Ben Smith. Okay, so Ben, to start here, (laughs) because girl, the Stan Wars is not a game. How are you defining fandoms? Are we talking like Nicki Minaj's barbs or the far more subtle low-key beehive? Um, None of this stuff is is that subtle and low-key, but I think to me what's interesting is that when you develop a real following on the internet, you can communicate directly to them, you can give constant two-way feedback, and at some point their, their love for you detaches from whatever the mainstream media is saying about them. You have this direct relationship with your fans, and I think that's, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, developed it through cable news as well as through the internet for sure. but I think, you know, what you saw with Donald Trump was that his, you know, he started, the, he basically was ahead in the race the day he entered it and went straight like that and won it, you know, as he was just talking directly to his supporters who loved him and trusted him more than they trusted what we in the media would say about them. I think, you know, in, in old presidential campaigns, the media would get excited about somebody, give them a couple of weeks, get tired of them, move on to somebody else. Um, and, and these candidates were very much at the mercy of the media. I think what you're seeing now is people, I mean, Mayor Pete is a good example, really kind of developing their own, their, their basis of support on, you know, on email on, and on social media that are, I think, going to be pretty durable. Hmm. And so it's this kind of direct to their fans, for lack of a better word, that you're pointing out here. Let me ask, because I got to say, though, in past political movements, you know, a lot of it is built on the cult of personality, right? Like, I do think there were big political figures who I would argue maybe fell into this, this fandom base. So, like, what, what's the real difference you see in the modern era versus, say, like, a JFK situation? Or Obama in 2008. Right, or Franklin Roosevelt talking on the radio. I mean, I think it's, it's not binary, right? And I think great politicians have always had this ability to connect directly with people. But, I mean, but it was just, lit, it was just mediated in a literal sense. Like, you know, the, Roosevelt and Kennedy had journalists wrapped around their fingers writing whatever they wanted, more or less, but they were still in some sense dependent on television, on the newspapers, through to talk, to, to, you know, to get their images out. And I think what you see now is if, you know, if there's a negative article in the New York Times about Mayor Pete, or if we write an article he doesn't like, he can just directly to his supporters say, this is a pack of lies and here's why. Mm. Um, something as I was reading the piece uh, earlier this morning is in the way you talk about the 2020 election, 2016 election, excuse me, and how everyone got Trump's candidacy wrong um, because of not understanding this dynamic. Uh, is this in some ways uh, your attempt as a news leader to reconcile, you know, maybe a different approach to covering elections and, and, and ch- lessons we should learn? Yeah, no, I have found that I communicate with my staff largely by writing blog items on our website. So it's kind of always been like that. But I, yeah, I do think that that's, you know, every, every presidential cycle is different. And I do think there's a real, dis- like, that 2016 was really, was the first real campaign of the social media era, which isn't to say TV was not incredibly important, but, but that there, there's a new way to re- of, of, for candidates to relate to, to their supporters. And, you know, like, you know, I think there were probably 10 campaigns in, the, in what was sort of the modern era, say, 76 to 2012. 
and that we're in a new moment. And there's a lot to figure out that we don't know and we'll be surprised by. Well, let me ask you, Ben. What, you are like you basically are saying that maybe the mainstream media is going to be cut out of this a bit. Uh, let me ask: Is that a loss of power? And how are you going to run your newsroom going into the 2020 election to to kind of uh, adjust for this shift? I mean, I think that we can't imagine that we're going to be like the main interpreters of of these of candidates. They're going to like they're going to be speaking directly to their supporters. What we can do is you know publish revelatory stories about how they use power when they have it that are deeply reported, convincing, tell you something new, like, like Henry's profile of Mayor Pete. I gotta say, I'm talking so much about Mayor Pete. This is the, this is the influence of social media right there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and also we can ask them tough questions and challenge them and get, get you know, we've had, we've had all, many of the candidates on this show and Julian um, Castro on the other day and, and push them and you know, really challenge them. And I think that's, that's our role. But I think we shouldn't have an illusion that we are like the central decision makers and referees. Right, and I should also note, this isn't just about people running for 2020. You also highlight Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and, and the way she, like, you know, people keep looking for her to have a misstep and that doesn't happen. And listen, her and Kellyanne Conway just this weekend, that direct approach. So that's kind of figuring in here too. Yeah, and you get used to, I mean, a narrative of anybody's rise, like in, 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 you know, in fiction and in life, that there are setbacks, that it's not like this. And I think that what you're seeing in these sort of social media feedback loops is that it is, it is in some ways, once you start going like this, you really can just stay up and to the right. And I think that's what you've seen with AOC. All right. That's what you saw with Trump. And with Trump. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. I like there at the last minute, he did not mention that we had also spoken to Buddha on the show because I feel like he felt like he was bringing Mayor Pete up a little bit too much. Uh, up next, Stephanie speaks with Brianna Sachs about how students are handling the aftermath of the California fires. Stay tuned. Months ago, California suffered the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in state history. BuzzFeed News reporter Brianna Sachs joined AMTDM regularly to report this story, and now she joins me again with an update on how the students are recovering. Bri, good to see you. Good to see you, too. So, so many times in situations like this, the reporters go in, they report on this big disaster, and then everyone leaves, and we never really hear about the aftermath, about how people are adjusting to the new normal after something as devastating as this. So why was it important for you to go back and actually report out how the wildfires are affecting this community? Well, I, I grew up here. I grew up evacuating uh, wildfires and, um, you know, was personally impacted by the Woolsey fire, which is, was in Southern California, um, which, you know, burned through the town where I grew up and even, you know, destroyed some of my family's Things. So I just, you know, I felt kind of compelled to keep trying to keep attention on a community that was totally almost leveled and, and um, facing a lot more hardship than like, than, than here really. And I was like, what, what is that like? I couldn't even uh, imagine. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it, it is important is that these fires have become so catastrophic and unprecedented, then it, it, we need to like look at how they're like the ripple effects of, of something like this on a town. Yeah. It's not something that happens and then everything's fine. Things just don't go back to normal. Yeah. And we all stop. Right. I mean, like, what do you do? Yeah. Like what do you do when your entire infrastructure is, is gone? Like what, what does that look like? And, um, you know, I, I talked to survivors on Facebook kind of almost 
every day and I'm reading these, you know, just insane stories. And so I just wanted to kind of go back and see it for myself. One thing that was really shocking about your piece is the schools are all gone. I mean, I think that's something that obviously I feel like to the town is obviously very evident, but looking from an outsider, it's shocking to see what the students have to do to actually study, to graduate from high school now, to be able to make something of themselves. What are students doing who no longer have a place to go to school? Yeah, well, actually, so Paradise High School, which is the main one, is is still there, but they can't use it because, like, Paradise is, like, still closed off, basically. So they've been, like, being getting really creative. Um, first of all, a lot of students are um, going online or they are just funneled into other districts. But, you know, a lot of them are, like, so traumatized. They wanted to be with their friends, so they've been coming back. So students are meeting in, like, a hardware store. They were in a lens crafters um they're like this one history teacher will travel to rv parks and restaurants to meet with students who are displaced like hours away and their family like lost their car and they can't like afford to drive their kids two hours to school every day um you know so they're they're just getting like super creative um you know some kids are like on their own and so they're having to apply for resources like welfare and fema so they're like some students will or teachers are incorporating that into like their curriculum called like, you know, they're like, well, we'll, we'll try and give them credits for having to go through this insane process of navigating like the California state welfare system. <laughs> so it's been pretty amazing to see what they're, what they've been doing. One of the other great things about your story is it really, I feel like you let the students themselves tell the story from their perspective. Can you give one story or one anecdote that you think our viewers might be able to for them to understand a little bit more what these students are going through? Yeah. So, you know, I, I reported on, on several students, um, one of whom her name's Mariah Coleman. And, you know, she's a 17 year old senior, like sister, her dad, um, they're super close. And they all of a sudden, you know, had to live together in this trailer because, you know, it just, the fire destroyed basically all of this housing. So people are like living kind of on top of one another. So, you know, just imagine like you're a 17 year old girl and you're sharing a bed with your sister and your dad's on the couch. Um, you know, she, they're, they, they've been impacted like financially severely. So she took on a, a, like a, a bigger job as this umpire. And so she'll, she'll work, she'll go to school and then she has to work until like nine 45 and then she comes home and sometimes like the generator doesn't work. So she doesn't have Wi-Fi, So she has to turn on a hotspot to be able to do her homework because, um, in the fire, all these schools lost their textbooks. So it's just like the, the, like what these people have to go through, just like kind of do homework is just, um, amazing. And she was an honor student, you know, before, and she wanted to graduate early and go, and go to college. And now she's just like, I, do I stay and help my family? Like my dad's depressed. Um, you know, she feels like they've just had to grow up, I think a lot faster than the normal teens. Definitely. Well, Brie, thank you so much for reporting the story and joining me today. I tweeted out the story earlier and I definitely recommend you read it. Don't go away. Up next, Isaac is sitting down with AP Bios, Lyric Lewis. 
Welcome back. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Lyric Lewis, comedian and one of the stars of AP Bio on NBC. Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? Good. I just got to say, like, this outfit, A+. Are you liking around. the ensemble? I truly <laughs> am liking the ensemble. It's incredible. <laughs> well, thank you. I got to ask, big, big weekend for pop culture. Yes. Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Endgame. Yes. Did you watch either, both, neither? Both. I'm surprised I found the time. <laughs> <laughs> Gave away many hours, though. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Caught it in theaters and caught Game of Thrones last night yes. on time? Yes. Did you have a, a favorite? Would you lean towards? I mean, I feel like I would def... You know, I don't know. I mean, Endgame was great. Mm -hmm. I have my notes. I have my comments <laughs> about it. Uh, but it was great with them thrones. I mean... Aria. That was it, right? Angel. You, we, we can talk about Game of Thrones spoilers, so feel free to like, okay. let loose. Angel Baby. I mean, I just, I'm excited. I'm so like on the edge of my seat for the next three weeks. Like, I'm, but yeah, last night, yeah. yeah. She was our little stabby queen. We love Aria. She was. She's I mean, right. we knew it was coming. Oh, but it was so good when it arrived, right? I just love that she walked past the White Walker and all they felt was her like smoke. They just felt her <laughs> essence. Like, they didn't even see his hair just blew in the wind and he was like, who said that? It is like, stab, 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 stab. Uh, it was so good. All I right, well, so it. listen, I gotta ask, you are in such a stacked cast on AP Bio. Uh -huh. Like, it's got everybody. You play a history teacher. Yes. What's the... I feel like I'm saying different like high school terms here, but what's the chemistry? Like, how did you guys get the chemistry so good between the characters? You know what? It came naturally, which I think we just got really lucky. Like, um, right away, like uh, Mary and I, I'm like, none of us knew each other. Well, I didn't know uh, Mary or Jean or anything like that. Jean and Mary knew each other, but at like the first initial auditions, me and Mary had scenes together. We like got paired up right away, mm -hmm. and from that, like literally, the onset, we like high fived and was like ah, <laughs> and then was like, excuse me, who are you? Why are you in my head? And why do I love you so much? And like literally from that moment, we all just like loved each other so hard, where it came so natural. But we all just love it's. Not even weird, it just naturally happened that way. It was like instant friendship. Instant. And we legitimately like hang out outside of work. We spend time with Jean's baby. Like we all like really enjoy each other's company all the time. I love that so much. I gotta ask, do you ever break when, when you guys are filming? Is there somebody that makes you do? Okay, yes, yes. you do. Who, who makes you break the most? I feel like probably Paula Pell. Like Paula <laughs> is insane in the best way. Like I would say she's a walking blackout line. Like every line she has, anything she improvises, like the entire set is like, trying to hold it together. And she's just so physically funny as well and, like, owns it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's definitely... I mean, we all make each other break, but Paula is relentless and unforgiving with how funny she is. The aria of breaking. She is. The aria of making stab, people stab. break. Yes. Stab, 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 <laughs> So uh, you, you teach all... You teach comedy uh, yes. at the Groundling Theater. Yes. Uh, did you pull from any of that experience as a teacher to, to help your character in AP Bio? Somewhat, you know, I feel like to be a teacher, you have to be very knowing and have to um, act like you know what you're talking about all the time, even when you don't. <laughs> um, and so I think some of that comes into play, whether you're teaching improv or history, you always have to be all knowing mm. and self-assured. <laughs> At all times, so, at, yeah. At all times, you were also you were the fifth full time cast member that was black at Groundling. Yes. Do you think things are improving for black women in comedy? Obviously, a lot a lot of space to go, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. Like, and especially with a lot of my students, like we um, have a diversity um, committee and everything now, and incentive at the Groundlings. But like, yeah, a lot of students don't know that. And I'm like, I was the fifth in 42 years. Say it again. I was the fifth main company member. 
of color, black one in 42 years. So in the f- 42 years. So the first was Phil Lamar, mm-hmm. which also tells you how recent it is. Mm-hmm. Like the first mm-hmm. was Phil Lamar, um, Jordan Black, Danielle Gaither, Maya Rudolph was the fourth, mm-hmm. and I was the fifth. So like it's that within the 90s and 2000s, like that's how short it happened. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but I definitely think it's changing. And I think also improv and sketch used to be like, I feel like kind of a frat, like mm-hmm. white guy type of sport. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like, you know, traditionally, like even when I started comedy, a lot of people would be like, oh, do you do stand up? And I was like, no, I just want to like do makeup ups and wear wigs. <laughs> and like, and it just wasn't something that I think was, we knew about or that was like super, we just weren't in the in the community like that as far as sketch and improv. And so I think now it is changing where we now, because we see representation of ourselves, mm-hmm. like I have students that are like, oh, because I see you on the wall at the Groundlings, I do want to take the next level of classes or I do want to come and see the sketch show because I can finally maybe see a sliver of my experience on stage versus it is nowhere around me at all. And and feel like maybe there's even a little room, you know, yeah. like that, you're, that that room is growing a little. Because you're right, National Lampoon's right, it was all like white guys from Harvard. Like yeah. that was a, and so you're really changing the dynamics there. And I think it's so important that you're, you're saying that you teach the history of it to your students at Groundling, and you're also, again, AP Bio History. History teacher. Gonna bring up Drunk History as well. You've appeared on the show three times. Yes. There's a fourth one coming. One more coming, set to air, when the show comes back this summer. Do you love, like, are you actually a history buff? You just laid out those names, too, real good. I am. You know, it's weird. There was an episode of AP Bio, actually, last year, where we did the volcanoes, and mine was uh, Pompeii and Herculaneum, which was Mount Vesuvius, (laughs) for those of you guys who don't know. Um, but it was weird because at the table read, I like lit up and I was like, who knew that I was into Pompeii and Herculaneum and Vesuvius? And they were like, we just picked it. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like you guys, you guys. And I was like, they, they're frozen in time. You can see the, I was like, you can see their bodies. You can see the food that they ate. I was like, you guys, we can go to the bathhouse and see the food, the corn, everything is still there. And they were like, girl, we just picked this. <laughs> Relax. So I genuinely, I used to work for the Science Museum of Minnesota when I was in high school as a camp counselor and a camp director. What? So, like, I'm very into, like, science and history. I just think it's so fascinating. It seems like this was incredible. Like, this, the, 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 the luck to have a character like this is incredible. That's into it. Is that how you got involved in drunk history, too? Are you just, you're like, hey, if anybody has a comedy history angle, I'm your, kind, I'm your person. Kind of. Like, my manager was just like, and I'd watch the show since they were on Funny or Die, like, when mm. people were, like, throwing up and passing out. And I was like, well, this is amazing. <laughs> of course, in college, we're like, we will do this thing. We will get drunk and for said things. But then my manager was like, if you're really into it. And so I met with Derek and I was like, but I really like history, Derek. And Derek was like, oh, and I was like, no, I'm really into it. And I was like, you guys should do world history. And I was like, I think it's fascinating. And I was like, we should do Stonehenge. We should do it all. Like, why not? And he was like, oh, you really like history. And I was like, and I like to have a sip. And you're like, those two things are not mutually exclusive. They, we, they can all go together. I'm like, it's a great way to, like, because also the thing about John History that is amazing is that you don't get to pick your own stories. They assign them, which I love because I'm like, I'm getting to learn about something that I had no idea about that I'm like, yes. You get to do the research. Yes. And do you think they weren't sipping in Pompeii? They were definitely sipping in they Pompeii. They were drunk. Grapes, <laughs> wine is just grapes. So they had their, they were sipping. They were sipping all the time. Uh, you also, you're a big fan of Jurassic Park. Not kind of loosely based in history. A little more uh, science fiction there. Yeah, no, you're yeah. right. You're right. Uh, you, your dog is named? Dr. Alan Grants. Like you love Jurassic Park. I do. Why do you love Jurassic Park so much? You know what? It's weird. I feel like, um, this is a corny answer, but I, I want the corny. I feel like, you know, when directors say like the movie that changed their life, that made them want to direct and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like when I saw Jurassic Park, when it came out, 
I don't know why. And I think because I always was into dinosaurs, I used to want to be an archaeologist when I was a kid. And so I was into them. And I think the fact that I knew that they existed and that they died, but I think that when I saw the film, the fact that it looked so real, mm. I was like, whatever job this is that brought this to life, that I was like, I believe that this is real. Like, I was like, I have to do this thing. Mm. And I was like, this, and it just like had such an impact because it looked Incredible. You were like, I want to be a part of bringing those stories to life. Yes, besides the tattoo that I have. Which, I'm sorry, life finds a way. Jurassic Park tattoo right here. But you found a way too, because you are doing it. You're living that dream. Yes. Congratulations. So JP is my jam. Shout out to Steven Spielberg, wherever you are. And, and you know, if he's making any history things coming up. Holler at your girl. Holler at your girl. <laughs> Derek Lewis, thank you so much for joining me this morning. This thank was an absolute you. pleasure. Listen, episodes of AP Bio, you can watch them on Thursday nights on NBC. And up next, Saeed is talking to the wonderful and magnificent poet, Jericho Brown. Hello, my queens. Here's a tweet from Black Nerd Problems. Jericho Brown's The Tradition is for both the lovers of poems and the lovers of people. It will not save us all, but it will have the heart to try. Beautiful. Beautiful. The wonderful Jericho Brown joins me now. Good morning, dear. <laughs> Hi. How are you, man? I'm good. This is a I'm so happy to be here. I love having you here. Thank I love you. having yeah, yeah, yeah. you here. Um, what's your intention with this book, To Try to Save People? To try and save people. Mm -hmm. When I'm writing a book, I'm trying to save myself. Okay. This book wore me out. Did it, did I wrote it. most of it between Thanksgiving of 2017 mm -hmm. and Martin Luther King Day of 2018. The poems okay. coming after me. That's intense. I was afraid. Uh -huh. I was sending text messages <laughs> late at night to friends. Uh -huh. Like, this is proof that my poems will kill me when I die. Uh -huh. You'll be able to use these text messages as proof. <laughs> so it's the best thing that ever happened to me yeah. and the most exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I loved every moment of it. What does it feel like now being able to share this, these poems with people? You know, I am from um, both of my... Grandparents on both sides of my family, my mm -hmm. grandparents were sharecroppers, as young oh, as I am. Okay. So the opportunity mm -hmm. to do what I do always feels like I'm living mm -hmm. a possibility that did not exist before, that only exists because of people who did a certain kind of work before I was even alive. I love that. So I like the fact that I get to live somebody else's imagination, oh. um, as well as the life I myself design. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that my poems. Um, stand mm -hmm. in the midst of all of that as a testament to my soul on earth right. and therefore as a testament to the fact of a soul on earth. Wow, your poems are a testament to the fact of your soul. Yeah. Woo. The best representation, the manifestation of my soul mm -hmm. would be my poems mm. in which I say the very complex things that I'm living every day. My goodness. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You just, I'm shook, girl. Yeah, it's okay. true. You know this. You know this, I do. Though. I do. You know yeah, this. I absolutely, I just wouldn't, yeah. I didn't expect to know it right now. <laughs> um, so this weekend, um, I was already excited to talk to you and everything. And then just by chance this weekend, you tweeted something that I was like, ooh, oh. I get to ask you about it. This is what you said. You said, hi, my name is Jericho Brown. <laughs> And I think it is absolutely rude and anxiety-producing uh, anxiety to approach a writer about a reading or a contest judging or a teaching opportunity with the, with the question, what is your rate? Yes. And this, this, this happens. You know, Jericho will be doing a reading tonight at 92nd Y if you're here in New York City. 8 Go see him. Yes, 8 p.m. Um, or you're speaking in school or something and you're minding your business and someone comes up to you with like, hey, I want you to come, you know, speak in my thing. What's your going rate? Like, what is it about that that rightfully throws you off? I think what happens is when people ask you that question, they ask you knowing exactly how much money they have to offer. Mm. Everybody who does anything does it with a budget. Mm -hmm. So offer me the money that you have mm -hmm. in the budget. Okay. <laughs> 
I mean, points were made. Why is it that when you're an artist, people are looking for opportunities to trick you right. so that they can pay you less than what they have to pay you? Mm-hmm. Give me all the money. Yes. Give me deserve. all the bags. I can say this is someone who <laughs> I can say this is someone who, you know, obviously is a poet, but also is written in other forms. I'm paid differently, yes. literally just based on the content. Like yes. if I'm introduced as poet Saeed Jones as opposed to writer or editor or whatever, yes. that immediately changes the money, but exactly. also I think frames like how seriously someone's being taken. Yes. It's like, oh, you're a poet. It's, yeah. it's like, whatever. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so one more thing I want to talk to you, and then I'm going to have you read a poem. Oh, yeah. Is um, leading into AWP, which is a writer's literary conference. Don't worry about it if you don't know it. You encourage people to do a burpee challenge. Now, yeah. now. You know, I'm behind on a burpees because I broke my toe. Oh, well, that's true. I'm on a book tour. Okay, fair enough. Now, yeah. I didn't break the... my toe doing burpees, though, so y'all okay, keep doing fair. your that's burpees. That's an important frame. Yeah. Now, Jericho, of course, is in very good shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You uh, should see me naked. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll leave that journey to you in your timeline. Um, what inspired you to do the, bur- the burpee challenge? What was your intention there? I was getting ready to go to AWP. <laughs> and I mentioned the fact that I was getting ready to go to AWP uh-huh. on Twitter. And what that would look like was me trying to take better care of myself. So that when I, fi- when I see people, uh-huh. I feel good about how I look. Because oh another anxiety-producing event is AWP. <laughs> it is. Which is a great conference. I love yes. AWP with yeah. all my heart and soul. But it's like, you have to walk by Rita Dove and act like that's normal. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so because things like that happen at AWP, I thought, oh, I'll take my mind out of it. This okay. is what I do with my own poems. Okay. One way I sort of escape from mm-hmm. thinking about the same thing over mm-hmm. and over again and obsessing mm-hmm. is to get exercise. And when you're picking up a really heavy weight, okay. when you're in the midst of because a burpee, you're, you're working too you hard can't too. think about other things. Mm-hmm. You have to think about what you're doing in that moment. That's true. So that's why that's important to me. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Well, let's get to the soul. Let's oh, put yeah. your mind back in it. This is from my my brand new so baby beautiful. book. She's like 25 days old today, Aww, man. Looking good. You look her. good, girl. I love you. Um, what's the book you're going to read? <laughs> I'll read Bullet Points, okay. which was actually first published in BuzzFeed Reader. Oh, tea. Okay, so you can look right over here and read it. Okay. Bullet Points. I will not shoot myself in the head, and I will not shoot myself in the back, and I will not hang myself with a trash bag. And if I do, I promise you, I will not do it in a police car while handcuffed or in the jail cell of a town I only know the name of because I have to drive through it to get home. Yes, I may be at risk, but I promise you, I trust the maggots and the ants and the roaches who live beneath the floorboards of my house to do what they must to any carcass more than I trust an officer of the law of the land to shut my eyes like a man of God might or to cover me with a sheet so clean my mother could have used it to tuck me in. When I kill me, I will kill me the same way most Americans do. I promise you, cigarette smoke or a piece of meat on which I choke, or so broke I freeze in one of these winters we keep calling worst. I promise that if you hear of me dead anywhere near a cop, then that cop killed me. He took me from us and left my body, which is, no matter what we've been taught, greater than the settlement a city can pay a mother to stop crying and more beautiful than the brand new shiny bullet fished from the folds of my brain. The thing about that poem is that you gave me the honor of publishing it on BuzzFeed News three, maybe four years ago, and you could have written it last week. Yeah, yeah, still that relevant. Yeah, there's still a long list of people who are dying, uh, supposedly of 
suicide right. while in police custody. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you for that poem. Thank you so much, man. And thank you for the tradition. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Guys, tradition has been out for 25 days. It's available everywhere. Pick up a copy for you and a friend so you can read it to one another. Obviously, reading the work brings it to life in another way. Up next, Isaac and I are going to read more of your tweets. Welcome back. Okay, so we asked you, after the Battle of Winterfell, where do you think the Game of Thrones is going to go for the last three episodes? Uh, Jolie says, I'm looking forward to Masanje <laughs> versus Sansa. Uh, Masanje was rather ready to gather her auburn edges in the crypt. Mm. That was an interesting moment in the episode because it was quick, right? But it was the only moment we got to see that even in the midst of battle, those tensions, well, actually, the Two, mm. one of two moments where even in the midst of battle, the tensions over the politics of what's going on have not totally been forgot about. The other one I realized was John tried to hold Danny's hand on the hill mm. and being like, I gotta go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, she did need to go. Yes. But it was also like a... Yeah, no, there is there is that tension there and I think we're gonna see that play out because I think we're gonna see Danny probably get a lot of credit for that win even though maybe... She didn't. Didn't do nothing. <laughs> not, not in some people's eyes. Couldn't not, even light a match. You couldn't even light a match. Shelly added, thank you, Isaac and Saeed, for standing Sansa and Arya, the queens in the north we deserve. Oh, man. I mean, do we I, deserve them? Have we done enough of our part? I <laughs> know uh, they're just so wonderful. I love them. Yeah, they are. And I see a lot of people saying things like, oh, maybe that ending wasn't totally deserved. It's like they've been building Arya up over right. seasons. Like, I will say, one of the things I truly enjoyed about last night's episode is they didn't nail nails over the head. You know, they didn't hammer their points home with dialogue. We talked about how they didn't talk a lot during the battle, but like they weren't like, oh, here's what's happening. Mm -hmm. They allowed the viewers to come to right. those own conclusions. Mm -hmm. And it was really impressive the way they did that. And it's like, oh, where'd Arya come from? Out of nowhere? It's like, have you not been no. watching this entire show? Here's the She's thing. been building up the whole yeah. time. And I just, re I just tweeted or retweeted a tweet from Ezra Klein, who's always welcomed opinions. Um, and he was just like, sorry, that ending was unearned. And to your point, I think when people say that, I'm like, you're telling us something about yourself. What kind of heavy-handed, over-the-top Jonathan friends in writing are you used to that anything more subtle that requires a different kind of textual reading, you're like, it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you're playing yourself. So anyway, thank you for the insight. Uh, Tanya Melendez tweeted this. Endgame was $1.2 billion because of after 22 movies, everyone was terrified to be spoiled. I'm scared. Isaac <laughs> is scared. Uh, I basically put myself in a medical coma for three days to avoid. I turned off notifications on social. I almost bought a physical newspaper before I realized that might be too much. Oh, okay. Gotta get that last. That list. Just like, now draw the shank draw the, the Yeah, the little stabby, stabby, yeah. stabby I'm, I'm going to, as soon as I leave Orte, I'm going home to rewatch Game of Thrones, yep. process what the hell happened all over again, yep. look forward to the tweets, uh, and then I'm going to see the movie tonight. Okay, that's all. Tonight. I just hope, I just hope you walk into it with a low bar <laughs> that nothing I've said on the show today has excited you. Isaac stresses out so much about getting me good. too excited. So It'll be great. I don't, you know, It'll I said we'll great. see. Well, all right, well, listen, thank you to our guests, Allison <laughs> Wilmore. Tom Namico, Stephanie McNeil, Ben Smith, Brianna Sachs, Jericho Brown. What a lovely moment that was. Incredibly powerful poem. Lyric Lewis, who was an absolute delight. And Daniel Franzesa, who was hilarious. Just really, really funny. All right, we'll be back here tomorrow, which is not today. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? Very nice.